Welcome to another episode of Capturing COVID, a podcast that takes experiences and turns them into memories. I'm sure everyone can think of ways that COVID-19 has impacted you, whether it's receiving your first dose of the COVID-19 vaccine or being a key leader, an important collaborator in addressing the prominent healthcare disparities in our black communities that were dramatically highlighted with the COVID-19 pandemic, like our incredible, amazing, wonderful, awesome guest today, Ms. Cynthia Williams. We created this podcast to document the stories and history of COVID-19 from various perspectives. We are passionate about giving our audience a resource to listen, relate, and reminisce on a time in history that the world will never forget, the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm really ready to forget, by the way. Now tune in for this 60-minute episode with me, Jason Newland, a pediatric infectious diseases physician at Washington University in St. Louis, and the Schnook Family Endowed Chair of Pediatric Infectious Diseases at St. Louis Children's Hospital. Welcome, gang, loyal listeners like Gabby and my mother, Keith and Sue, we appreciate you guys a lot, and all the other listeners. We are all in store for a treat, hopefully in store for some education that you all need to hear. Just an amazing friend, individual, colleague, the wisdom that has been provided from this amazing person, Miss Cynthia Williams. Welcome to the podcast, Miss Cynthia. Good afternoon to the audience, and thank you for having me, Jason. Good things did come out of COVID, and you were one of them, so I'm very happy to be here. Back at you. You were tremendous that came out of this. So, now, people need to know, I'm going to just be honest, so we kind of messed up the audio the first time Cynthia and I recorded this. So, this is actually take two. I always believe there's reasons that this happens, and I think it's just because we just got to go, we got to do it again. We got to go more in depth. I just want to thank you for dealing with me and putting up with me and teaching me and doing this again. So, thank you for that. You're welcome. Thank you for trusting me and including me. Oh, uh, you're welcome. All right. So you got to know Cynthia, Miss Cynthia. I call it all kinds of different things that are usually it's Cynthia or Miss Cynthia. Well, Cynthia Williams. Cynthia graduated with her undergraduate degree from Concordia in 1994. Is that correct? That is correct. Where is Concordia? Well, you know what? It's a, a Concordia is actually on the campus of Concordia Seminary here in St. Louis. Okay. And it is an accelerated program. So I, that was my bachelor program. Excellent, ex, absolutely excellent program that prepared me well for interest into graduate school at the Brown School at Washington University. Which is important because then you go to get your master's in social work from, let's be clear, the preeminent, the best School of Social Work in the country, the Brown School at Washington University in St. Louis in 1996. That's right. That's correct. Now, it's super important to know, though, you've been working at the Brown School for a couple of years. Is that, isn't that right? Oh, for a couple, yeah. I started in 1980, and if I'm blessed to see October, it will be 42 years. 42 or 43? 42, I think. 42? Yeah. It's pretty amazing. That's incredible. It is. I I'm as shocked as anybody can possibly be that I've been there that long. Not because it wasn't a great experience, but time has just flown. Cynthia is currently the assistant dean for community partnerships at Washington University in St. Louis at the Brown School, which is such an important role. It is incredibly the key that actually more people should know you. Not enough people know you because your insight into our community is essential for success. 
What were your roles leading up to that over the 42 plus years? Well, let's, let's start from the beginning. When I came in, I used to work for a trucking agency. I worked for that organization for about seven years. They decided to move to another city. I didn't want to move with them. I had family, parents that I wanted to support, and a little girl. Uh, my husband and I had a little girl, and I wanted to stay here and let her be close to her family. So long, long story short, I left the trucking company, got on a grant that was only supposed to be five years. I lasted the five years with Dr. Ron Feldman. He moved away to Columbia University, asked me if I wanted to go. I couldn't go for the same reasons. I stayed. So then I was hired on at the Brown School as a secretary with no degree. So I worked in the secretarial services at the time, was the manager for that. I worked for the PhD department at the time, was a manager for that. And then I decided at the suggestion of a very strong, direct-talking woman by the name uh, Maisie Moore. She said, Cynthia, you've been here 10 years at that time. You could have taken all the classes you needed and had your bachelor's. Well, that struck me. Actually, it was embarrassing because she was right. So at that, that very day, I contacted Concordia University, we had an excellent accelerated program, which means they took a portfolio of all of my experiences, gave me life credit for it. And then for the next two years, I worked through their program. I got my bachelor's degree. After having got my bachelor's degree, that caused me to be able to be promoted a little bit. I decided now I'm going to go and get my master's degree at the Brown School. And I did. I got my master's degree. And then I started being in a position where people stopped telling me, oh, if you only had a master's degree. Well, when I got it, I started being promoted to different roles. So I've been the assistant dean for field education. Actually, it was the assistant dean for field education and community partnership. Wow. Yes. The then dean, Eddie Lawler separated those roles and made me the assistant dean for community partnerships. And another capable individual was the assistant dean for field education. And I've been in the role that really is my calling, and that is to work in community. And how long has that been, your, your role? I've been in this role currently going into my seventh year. There's no doubt that this is like your calling. I love it. Everyone needs to meet you because they need to know community and our community or just com how what community means. Now, I'm just going to tell you right now, this is why we had to re redo this podcast. That story right there, to me, just made it. Okay. You know, you hear people not want to go back or they like, oh, I, I just, I don't have time. to what You used the word embarrassed. What other, I mean, there had to be other reasons. Was there other reasons for going back? The strength and the fear you probably had and how did you get over that, overcome that? Because I'm sure it was scary. She was right. I was not taking advantage of the opportunity that I all wanted all of my life, and that was to graduate from Washington University. When I was 18 years old, I actually had a scholarship to come to Washington University. Life took a different turn. I made different decisions. I didn't do it. But now here comes another opportunity. When Maisie Moore told me the absolute truth, and she was somewhat disgusted with me. 
I had to respond and like, you are so right. And it was a wake up moment for me. So that was when the embarrassment came as, girl, what have you been thinking? And the fact was, I was thinking about everything else, but how to advance myself and actually be a role model for my daughter, who at the time was 10 years old. Oh, wow. Right. Oh, wow. And I was also a foster parent and I had children in my home that I wanted to be an excellent role model for. So what better way than to go back and get my degree? So it wasn't even a matter of being afraid. It was a matter of the door is open. I'm going to walk through it and I'm not going to stop until I reach my goal of having a master's degree from the Brown School at Washington University. That's that gave me chills right there. That's fantastic. Thank you, Maisie Moore, wherever you are. Yes, wherever you are, Maisie. Do you know where she is? Well, she left and went to Fonbon for a while, yeah. and then I lost track of her. But she is an amazing woman, an amazing colleague, a strong black woman who told me like it was, and that's that's my love language. Just tell me like it is. You know what? People should hear that. Tell like some people's love language is tell it like it is. I think it, we probably should be telling it like it is a lot more than we do. But honesty, right? Honesty, transparency. Let us know. And, that, and we'll we'll talk about some stories about how that was so impactful for me. So I, I went somewhere different than I was expecting. But that's why I love the podcast. Now, so you are assistant dean. You know, here of community partnerships. And now, and we were talking before, just that you know, you're now kind of a co-chair and leading a part of impact st louis can you tell a little bit about more of this efforts that's kind of affiliated with brown school and what you're doing there okay well i'll start by telling you a little bit about what being the assistant dean for community partnerships means i will tell you that for me that role i'm the inaugural assistant dean in that position so what it has meant to me is to make sure that community and university Not the entire university, because I am relegated to the Brown School, but to make sure that community members and the Brown School leadership communicated in a way that was clear and concise, effective, and on time. My role has been to be that liaison and sometimes mediator to make sure that both heard each other and that both interest community and the Brown School was being attended to. And so I've been entrusted with that role. And uh, so far, I've been successful from what I can oh, tell. You're, you're more than successful, right? Like, I mean, she's like Grand Slam. Like, think of any like big time sports reference, and I should use others or Pulitzer Prize, whatever. That's that's Cynthia. You are incredible. We were just talking to one of my colleagues. She wants to do more community-based reference. This You need to talk to Cynthia. Go talk to Cynthia. That's 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 how you do community. Okay, so that's that role. So how about this new thing or this new role that you're taking on? You know, most organizations have a strategic plan. Washington University is no different. Brown School specifically also has a strategic plan. It's Strategic Plan 2030. There are many tentacles to that plan, but they have a core commitment. And the core commitment aligns with that of Chancellor Martin, and that is to impact St. Louis in a positive way, to become an enhanced relationship with the community. So there is a commitment by the Brown School, also called Impact 
St. Louis. So within Impact St. Louis, there is an initiative that, well, there are several, but the one that I want to highlight is to actually develop a pilot, which is going along very nicely, where staff at Washington University can contribute their professional skills to nonprofit organizations to fill their capacity gaps. So as you know, Jason, across the country and in St. Louis, there is a shortage of workers, right? Yeah. Every industry has been touched. Yep. So I thought, along with my colleague, Dr. Sean Joe, about five years ago, what would it look like if not only were students their dispassion to the community through their various requirements of the curriculum, faculty do research, but we have very, very gifted staff who support both student and faculty, but in our own rights, which I am staff, in our own rights, we possess skills and knowledge and talents that could actually be launched in the community to fill capacity gaps. So what that looks like is we have experts in marketing and developing strategic plans. We have individuals who can edit and who can build web pages and et cetera, et cetera, who mentor. So what if we had organizations in the community that for a limited amount of time could utilize the capabilities of Washington University staff? The same time, staff who would volunteer to take on some roles that would be pre-described and they could devote. It hasn't been approved yet. So a certain specified amount of time in a specified organization. Now, this is the exciting part. The Brown School actually has what we call priority areas. We established those priority areas actually because of the killing of Michael Brown in 2014. Yeah. So when we as a school wanted to be so involved in Lynn's support in the aftermath of Michael Brown's killing, we found out that we could do better. So our then dean said, Cynthia, Let's have designated priority areas. And what they are, Jason, are North St. Louis, North City, North County, South City, and East St. Louis. Yeah. So what that basically means is we're keeping our eye on supporting and developing initiatives that are already on the ground and organizations that would be interested in having us come to the table or help to convene those tables. That's fantastic. So that's what those priority areas mean in a nutshell. That's great. This is why I love St. Louis. I've fallen in love with this city. Me too. I love St. Louis. I love St. Louis. And people are like, St. Louis, that's, why would you want to be there? There's all this <laughs> crime and this and that. No, no, no. And it's racist and nothing. Okay. Yes. We have a segregated city. Yes, we do. Now we have a city that we're trying to lean into and make it better. Yes. And here's one. We had the murder of Michael Brown in our city, and we're trying to make it better. I, I will say that when you were talking about this, it made me think of the empowerment, right? Empowering. We talk about our good friend, Dr. Shreda Butler-Barnes. Absolutely. And this empowerment, and that's what that's what impact is, right? It's like, let's empower our community. Let's be a part of our community. Let's not just research our community. Let's actually go be in our community and do our, and work in our community, which is we're going to get to this even more. That's a great summary. That's what I do. That's That's it. what you do. Cynthia, what was it? What was it like for you and your family in March of 2020? In March of 2020, 
seemed like the world changed. It did. But it changed not only on a micro level, macro level, but it changed on a micro level, meaning it hit our family as hard as it hit anyone. Because at that particular time, my dad was in hospice. And my mom, being 83 years old at the time, the the amount of attention that they needed, caregivers around the clock, trying to keep them in their home to tend to their needs, was just one piece of why 2020 was, March 2020 was so scared, because we had to be careful about their health. Who came in the house, how diligent they were with masking. How do we get them uh, with the COVID test? Would it be okay given my dad in particular's uh, medical concerns? So it was a lot of pressure. There was a lot of unknown. And then personally, Jason, I love people. I love to be around people. And it was so limited that all I can remember was I miss being hugged at church. You know, church folks, we hug a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I miss that Sunday and my denomination, Sunday and Wednesday and, you know, some Fridays we would get together and everything just shut down. It was done. So it was very hard mentally and emotionally and for others physically as well because we didn't know how we were going to be as attentive to my father's needs as we needed to. I'm going to read some stats about the disparity that hit early. Now, most people know I'm I'm a white privileged male, very, very white and very privileged. Um, my dad was a doctor. I grew up in a small town in Oklahoma, and I got whatever I really wanted and probably could never get in trouble. Seriously, I, I think looking back, I could have never get in trouble uh, because of who I was and where I was. My good buddies that were black, they were getting in trouble all the time for probably things that I did. Um, this kind of disparity, I didn't see that, but... The pandemic slapped me in the face with disparity. And here are a couple of stats I'm going to read. And, I, and, and I'll get back and I want to ask you something that you said before that we, when we've been talking. Mm -hmm. So on April 10th, 2020, I gave a talk to our Department of Pediatrics. The title of the slide is COVID-19 Racial Disparity. And here are the, the stats I put. It said, Chicago, black residents dying. I'm going to say that again. Black residents dying at a rate six times more than white residents. Louisiana, 70% of cases in black community. Washington, D.C., blacks, 29% of cases and 59% of deaths. Milwaukee, half of cases are black and 81% of deaths. New York City, pediatric cases, that's where we first started learning about pediatric cases, reported to be mostly black and Hispanic. Michigan, 33% of the cases in blacks, 41% of deaths. In St. Louis at the time, I think the only people that had died were black. And I don't have that. I don't know if that's for a fact, but I think we did talk about this. It was horrific. It was, it was so sad. It was beyond sad. It was catastrophic for families because in the black community, I'm just speaking about the black community because I'm a member of it, but I do realize that all communities were hit hard. Yeah. But in the black communities, we were losing leaders, people that we looked to. So not only family members, but some people who doubled as family members and community members. We were losing pastors. There were organizations. I would get phone calls quite often saying, we've lost 
this bishop in my church. We've lost half of the choir has COVID and some had died. So let me explain that to you. This also then became a crisis of faith because individuals in the faith community were concerned that, am I not, do I not have enough faith? Can they, they actually close my church down? And if I don't go to church, is that reflection of the lack of faith that I had? So some people we lost because it was a matter of a test of faith. So you see, in in some respects, it went so deep. And then family, Black families, we visit and we worship together and we cohabitate, right? So sometimes when individuals lost their jobs, they had to move in with their grandmother or other family members. And the adherence sometimes to masking wasn't as adhered to as it could have been. And that meant our most vulnerable, which were the elderly with pre-existing health conditions, were impacted and many died. Yeah. Yeah. So we should say even still now, the biggest risk factor for anybody is being elderly. You have mentioned something about feeling like this was a conspiracy a little bit with the social distance and peace. And I, and I want to just call it out, right? Like our history, our United States history back even before we were a country, back to when we were having black slaves brought to our country, you know, starting in the early 1600s. Let's, let's be clear. This has been going on forever in our country. That's the start. Then you have studies that were even within the last hundred years. The United States Public Health Service study on untreated untreated syphilis study in black men at Tuskegee. Now, I threw in the black men, and I say mm-hmm. that whole long thing. Some people refer to Tuskegee. You say, well, it had nothing to do with Tuskegee. That just happened to be where they did it. It should be noted the untreated syphilis study in black men at Tuskegee occurred from 1932 prior to the effective treatment of penicillin being available to 1972. Again, this study went from 1932 to 1972, and the treatment penicillin became available in 1940s. None of these men were consented or asked permission to participate in this study, and none were offered the penicillin treatment that would cure the disease when it became available. Now, this study led to more than just the men's health being impacted, which, by the way, included 128 of these men dying of syphilis or related complications. But it also resulted in the men transmitting syphilis to 40 women. And then these women also then had 19 children who were born with congenital syphilis, a horrible illness that leads to dramatic impacts on these children's lives. Now, the response to this horrible, unethical study was the passing of the National Research Act in 1974 that created the National Commission for the Protection of Human Subjects of Biomedical and Behavioral Research. This act required and continues to require researchers to give voluntary informed consent from all persons and requires all human subjects research to be reviewed by institutional review boards, stuff that we have all do when we do research. These boards are at all places that do research with humans and make sure they meet the ethical standards. We are going to put some information about the impact of this study on future research and how it was important for our response to be what it was. So please see our show notes for more information. Why would you ever trust anybody in the medical community? Then think about Henrietta Locks, and there's more and more stories about black individuals treating being treated less than human. I can't imagine as this is happening, and now you're feeling your faith is being tested. Can you even believe it? 
decades and decades later, you come along with COVID. And we use language like social distancing. Well, later on, we wished, and it would have been, I think, more effective to say physical distancing. But when you said social distancing, that was a whole different perspective. You couldn't come together. You couldn't socialize or you weren't supposed to. That was the whole thing. But then we were seeing other communities, like in the rural areas, they were doing exactly the opposite of what the world was being told to do. And they seemed to be fine. They seemed to be very fine. So there were mixed messages. Yeah. How can you even trust what's going to go on? The other story I want to get to that I heard last time we spoke is that I was on TV a lot which is always funny for people. Yeah, I was on TV a lot, and I would answer questions on a local news station called KSDK. It was the NBC affiliate here in St. Louis, and I was on there Thursdays and Sundays. The reason I bring this up is that April comes around, and, I, and I'm starting to learn, and I'm starting to actually now see disparity. I'd never seen it. I'm lying if I told you I saw it before the pandemic, and now it slapped me in the face, and I'm like, oh my gosh, how haven't I seen this? Because it's important for people to know race is a social construct, And there's not these significant genetic differences that that's going to explain the fact that black individuals were dying more than white individuals that we just talked about. It was the systemic racism that has occurred over time and that has continued, that has put our black community and our and other marginalized people of color, poor, which can all go together. That's right. Into situations that have put them at higher risk. Yes. Now, it was important, though, that this notion that more blacks were having COVID be understood in our community. And so I was blessed to be on a meeting with a wonderful woman, Lorna Godwin. So, and I know you know Lorna Godwin. Lorna Godwin, a previous anchor, worked, at, I think, at CNN and uh, worked with the regional response team here in St. Louis, which was really dedicated to making sure information was getting into our community, especially our black communities and our communities of color. Anything else? Is that a fair representation of regional response? Anything else you'd like to add to that? No, I think, but I know Lorna by reputation, and it is a stellar reputation, and the work that she was involved in with others was very, very impactful and very effective. And I'd hate to even think about what would our community have done without that type of response. Yeah, she's amazing. So she goes, Jason, all right, I think I can help you. I'm like, dude, I know I can use some help. I mean, because she did media. And so she's like, here's what I want you to do. And she gave me this answer the question bridge into what you want to say i was like oh so i just yeah if you like i'm always maybe answer but say what i want bridge then really get to the point so the beauty about kstk and those wonderful people that are mike bush and that whole crew is that they would say jason if you want a question bring a question to us so lorna and i worked on a question to make sure that we address this notion that just because you're black doesn't mean you're the ones having covid like that right. wasn't, it wasn't that you you being biologically having black skin meant that you were getting it more than white. But no, it was because of the systemic racism in the places you were in. Yeah, there was a restaurant in St. Louis, and not just in St. Louis, that literally had a sign on their door. Did I see it? I saw the report. And the one in St. Louis, did I see it? I did see it. It said African-American slash blacks were not welcoming this restaurant because basically you're the carriers of COVID. So you can see how the messages were being confused. So it went from 
being vulnerable because of systemic racism to being the actual carriers, regardless of anything, just by virtue of being black, you were a carrier. Yeah. This whole notion of being a carrier, I'm like, oh, I remember when we were talking, I was like, what? Oh, I forgot all about this carrier time. Like people were thinking that, and I know our Asian American colleagues and friends that had some similar, you know, looks and says, oh, that's the reason you we have COVID is because of you. And, you know, we got into a time of stress and concern and we definitely were showing some signs that we show all the, all the time maybe in other places about our racist nature pre-existing biases and prejudice and it really came out strong it did Whew. early on really hard you have a wonderful sister i know bethany javois yeah bethany johnson javois she's the uh, the president and ceo of the deaconess foundation and i think during this time wasn't she the head of the integrated health network she was Yes, she was. And then Integrated Health Network for everyone out there, um, basically it has like our federal qualified health centers within St. Louis and kind of organizes them together and they do things. And I can't imagine what her life, maybe we probably should have her on the podcast to talk about it, but I, I don't know any, any thoughts on how she was thinking during this time. She was up day and night trying to get information out to the community, trying to make sure that the way the information was gotten out was considerate of how it was being stated and making sure that it was at a level where anyone could understand the risk as well as the necessity to get vaccinated. Now, we'll get to another piece about that, but it's something when you are part of a community and you're saying, no, on this one, you have to trust. This one, you have to trust. And as a person, being African-American, I don't think people really realize we have to put our names, our reputation on the line. And this during this period, that was necessary because yeah. sometimes the other communities, communities, Jason, that look like you, it seemed that it was going to advantage other communities, the white community, and again, disadvantage the black community. So Bethany was at a point in which she was saying, along with Angela Brown and a lot of other people, Angela's at the Regional Health Commission, yeah. a lot of outstanding professionals were saying, no, on this one, you got to trust, you got to get this vaccination. Advantage versus disadvantage, because so many things had happened in our black yes. community Yes, that would make sure they didn't get what they needed. And let's just talk access. Oh, yeah. Access to testing, access to the vaccine of COVID vaccine and COVID testing. What was that like for our black community early on? It was double talk because what was being promoted was that the black community was resistant to the COVID vaccination. Well, yeah, for some of the reasons we've already covered, there wasn't enough information. It appeared that the vaccine just showed up out of the blue. How did that happen when it takes decades for other vaccinations to be tested and approved and FDA stamped and all of these things? There were literally things to be concerned about. So then we got the rhetoric about resistance, meaning they didn't want to take it. Well, even individuals that wanted to take it, like me and my family, there was little access. And when access was made available or 
promoted and advertised. Individuals in the black community, we didn't get the information. Let me tell you why. Because not everyone is privileged enough to have access to Wi-Fi, to a computer, to have the information or even transportation to the locations where you could get the vaccinations. So now you're building in time and individuals will say, well, forget it because it's too hard. If it's that important, why can't I get access to it? Yeah. And just to give people a layout of what St. Louis is like. So we have St. Louis City, which think of St. Louis City as a county. And then we have the largest county in Missouri called St. Louis County that's just west of St. Louis City. So think of St. Louis City right along the river. And then East St. Louis is in Illinois, just on the other side of the Mississippi River. Mm -hmm. Then in St. Louis, we have something called the Del Mar Divide. Del Mar Boulevard runs east and west. From, just think about east from the river, a Mississippi River, out west. And this divide is well chronicled in a forsake of all report, which has another name. What's the other? Health equity. Health equity that you cannot, we'll make sure it's in the show notes. And the two things you should know about Del Mar Divide. Number one, if the farther east you are, the more impoverished, more not as developed, more black, more people of color, more east you are. The more west you go along Del Mar, more money, more developed, more white. So east and west. And then if you go north of the Del Mar Boulevard, same thing, being more poor, more black, more run down. Is that fair? Yeah. And so we talk a lot about these Del Mar devices. And, and if I recall, when you were getting some access in North County, then you started seeing some white people coming up that usually aren't there. That are never there. They had stopped coming. But when there was openings to get the vaccine, you saw <laughs> many individuals from the rural communities, people who had never in their life crossed Del Mar, were now crossing into North County. Because why? The vaccine was now available at Christian Northeast yep. Hospital, right? Yep. And the lines were huge. Were huge. And I'd never seen so many, so many white people in line in North County to do anything. Yeah, I volunteered up there because we started doing pediatric vaccine December of 21. And did you see it? Oh my goodness. <laughs> Oh my goodness. We gave like 700 vaccines one day. Okay. And it was, if you go north, if Cynthia and I drove north to her church in Jennings. Yes. I've been to Miss Cynthia's church in Jennings. We go yeah. there. Yeah. It's all black. It's pretty much 95% black people. That's right. It is 95%. I would say black. And you'd rarely see even today a white person unless they were dumping or looking for drugs. Yeah. And when they, we were doing these vaccine clinics, it was like, it was diversity all over the place. It was, I was all kinds of people. I mean, six, 700 vaccines a day. And because we had kid vaccines, I mean, it was crazy. Yeah. It was also because we were about to have Omicron surgery. Everybody wanted their vaccine. They're like, oh, there was this story. I, I want to tell a story from that because it reminds me, you know, you were talking about this notion of access and now you can't get it. And, or why would I even try to go get it if it's this hard? Trying to go do CVS or Walgreens, like it was not easy to do that web-based form, by the way. No. I know it wasn't easy because I did. And I was like, wow, this is hard. And if you're not used to these questions, oh right. boy. That's right. And so I'm volunteering for this vaccine clinic. I'm the pediatric doctor in case there's a pediatric person, but I was one of the few doctors there. So if an adult had a problem, they called us. I'm like, okay. Sitting there says, hey, someone's falling outside. I'm like, okay. So we run out there. There's this wonderful 
black man, probably in his 60s, who is trying to get, running to get here and trips on the curb. And I'm like, oh, it's okay. He's like, oh, I'm, I'm late. I'm an hour late. I worked. I, you know, I couldn't get my transportation. I can't. And I'm like, oh, no, it's fine. You, you're fine. And it dawned on me, right? He was so worried. Yes. You know why? Because he's been turned away. He's been turned away. You think about healthcare, right? You're 15 minutes late. You're turned away. That's right. I had a dermatology appointment today. Guess how long it took him for them to see me? 45 minutes. Wow. I'm white, privileged male. Trust me, man. I was like, what? You imagine these people that are trying to get transportation. This guy was so scared that we weren't going to give him his vaccine because he was going to be an hour late. That's the racism and disparity that we've created in our society because we've made it difficult for people that are working so stinking hard to make ends meet, not to be able to get their health care. And working longer and older and the stress behind some jobs required, if you didn't have the vaccine when it yeah. was made available, then you lost your job. Yeah. I want to cry about this. I mean, it was and we also didn't make it easy, right, to get vaccinated if you had a family. That's right. Because if you had, like, what, what, more than three or four, you had to come back. Yeah. And well, in the different doses for the kids. Right. Right. So you had, you had a dose for the six to five-year-olds. Um, we got a dose for the five to six to 11-year-olds. You had another dose for the 12 and ups. I mean, it was nutso. So, right, you got a family of five. They got to get five different doses. You're like, how is somebody living day to day who have been just doing their best? They want to be vaccinated. We didn't make it easy. Did. I mean, we haven't, and we still haven't made it easy. But we got to make that better. That's a whole other story. All right. Whew, we've covered a lot, and we still haven't gotten to how we met. You know, COVID is rip-roaring, raging, and we're people have listened to this podcast know we did some school-based projects. You've heard that I'm now, like, seeing this disparity, and I'm mortified, and I'm trying to think, well, how is my role in this? And, you know, obviously been benefited from the system and want to think, well, how can I help? And we started doing a project with the Special School District of St. Louis. So if you haven't listened to us before, the Special School District is this amazing school district in St. Louis, St. Louis County. It serves children with intellectual and developmental disabilities, students that might have autism, behavioral health problems, might have multiple you know, technology needs, like needing a breathing machine or right. what, whatever. And they work in our public school systems, but then they also have their dedicated schools just for those kids. And it is amazing. They have schools in North County. Again, we've talked about this, North County, predominantly black. They have schools there. They have schools in Mid-County and then they have schools in South County. And we started doing a project with them, the COVID-19 testing project, because we knew that these were these kids were more vulnerable. These staff members were more vulnerable because masking was harder, distancing was harder. So these whole things we knew. And I started working with a, with a good friend, actually, because her daughter, not her daughter, and my daughter plays soccer, and that's Nancy Miller. Now, Nancy Miller was works at the Brown School Evaluation Center at the time. Yes, right now she doesn't. Sorry, yes, she's moved on to the provost office, correct? That's right. So we, we're doing this project, but we're also doing this other project with transmission in schools. And I and I had got to know Sharonica Hardin Bartley, who has been on the podcast, the most recent podcast, and you better listen to that one because that one is fire or gas. I've been told that fire and gas, may, maybe fire's aged. I'm not allowed to use it. But anyhow... It's fantastic. You want know, it talks about disparity and honestly, Cynthia, if you knew that she went door to door to eighty-eight families that she couldn't because they hadn't heard from them. I heard. She's amazing, right? She is amazing. Unbelievable leader. Anyhow, so I'm doing this. I'm trying. We're trying. We work with Pattonville as well. Another kind of a little different. Fifty percent minority, kind of northwest county-ish. So, you know, it had some diversity, and we're working with them. And then we get this opportunity to do this other project in North County, St. Louis, 
where we're going to basically look at COVID-19 testing in the schools. And Nancy says, you need to have Cynthia. You need to have Miss Cynthia Williams be a part of the project. I'm like, okay. What's your side of this story? Oh, well, I'm so grateful because I worked with Nancy at the Brown School for many years. And Nancy and I both are telling like it is people. So we've had our moments in which we've told each other like it was. And well, we've always come back together. So when she came to me and said, hey, Cynthia, I want you to consider working with this pediatric specialist. And I was thinking, oh, God. Oh, boy, here we go. (laughs) Somebody else who thinks they know it all. I said, well, Nancy, because you know me, if you're thinking I should meet with them, I'll meet with them. I looked you up, Jason, and I'm thinking, oh, man, he's really accomplished. He's really recognized. I came to know later how esteemed and outstanding you are. But uh, at the time, I wasn't so intimidated that I would say, no, I can't work with him. So, And I'm glad that I wasn't. And, and so I said, okay, Nancy, and then the rest is history. I met you for myself. And I thought, you know what? This guy might be worth taking a chance on. So you you know you're a rarity. In my tradition, there's a whole, you know, I'm, I'm going to read it to you because it comes to mind when I think of you. It's It says, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. And that was you. You listened. That was what made the difference. You weren't resistant. You were asking questions about a community that you wanted to be educated about. And then I found out that you had a loving spirit. So that made all of the difference, Jason. That's how we stay friends. I appreciate that. Well, thank you. You know, you mentioned that one of the worries sometimes when you're working with investigators or people that are research or people, white men, you could get kind of sidelined. Yeah, you can. Can you talk about that a little bit, about how that, kind of how that's happened for people? Well, something about academia kind of jades people, you know, and I have a lot of people that I love who are very bright and have many credentials. But on occasion, you'll run up on individuals who forget where they came from. They forget the uh, service piece. They forget that sometimes we just need boots on the ground. We don't have time to read an article or to read the research. We need those who have the information to put your souls on the ground and go into community and then be re-engaged with people. So sometimes the ivory tower really is an ivory tower and we need to come out. And I think COVID did that for many. Yeah, yeah. Now... One of our now dear friends, and I know you've been friends, is Dr. Sharita Butler-Barnes. Yes. Nancy also, you and Nancy, or just Nancy, talked to Sharita about being a part of this project. Yes. Sharita is like the bomb. She is amazing. She is amazing. Her work on racial socialization of black teenage women, her work on discussions of racial violence in black families, and her notion of strength-based work, empowering Versus deficit-based work, yes. Versus deficit. That changed us, right? Yes, absolutely. You remember when I basically went to you, Sharita, and Nancy said, we can't do this? Yes. I 
him like, what do you mean? Actually, what I didn't say was, this isn't about you. Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) That's what you would tell me now. Right. It wasn't about me. And I just remember you guys saying, no, we have to do this. We have to. And it became a we because at the time, what we were sold into is, no, Jason, this is we. Mm-hmm. We have to do this. So, yes, you could pull the plug. But what happens to the we? When we said, no, we have to do it, you said, okay, okay. Because I think you heard the we, even though you didn't say anything that said, oh, you guys, you mean there is a we? You heard it in your heart. All fairness, I heard you guys think we should do it, and I still didn't understand the we. Okay. Right? Like, I think unconsciously, it was there. I hadn't completely heard it. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And see, at the time, I would have said, let me explain further, Jason. But I didn't know at the time I could talk to you like that because of past experiences. Whatever the reason you bought it, and Sharita and I were grateful. Now, be reminded that both of us in the beginning were hesitant. Yeah. And so at the very beginning, if you said, I can't do this, it would have been okay. But after we saw the potential benefit to the black community, other vulnerable communities, it was no longer an option for us. Well, that's how I felt, actually. Yeah. Yeah. I felt like it was no option. It's like, no, no, no. Uh Uh-uh. Our vision in this was, no, we could do this. And I think you guys, we had basically went and says, no, we're going to, we want to have a team that's diverse. It's going to reflect our community. We have these people. We can do this. And, um, and then you're like, no, no, we have to do it. I'm like, okay, if they say we have to do it, we have to do it. Again, I don't think I understood the we. Now, that was early on, and I wasn't using we and our very much, was I? No, you would use a lot of your. In particular, there was one meeting. I think it was a Zoom meeting, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, it was a Zoom. It was a Zoom meeting, and you were talking about your community. You were talking about the black community, your community. You were talking to people that were members of the black community. By this time, now, Sharita and I said, hey, can we talk to you? I think we sent you an email and say, can we get on your calendar and have a conversation? Yeah, I'm going to go back even further. So this is now we have the grant. We actually got the money, and we set up a community advisory board. And we set up this community advisory board, which basically was our community, and it was our school community. So these are the school districts we have. We have Ferguson, Florissant School District, large school district. Yes, if you know the Michael Brown murder that occurred in Ferguson, that's that school district. We have Normandy, extremely poor, black. I I couldn't believe it. I walked into this school, and I didn't see any white students. And I was like, oh, we are so segregated. Mm -hmm. So we have Normandy. We have Jennings. Then we had University City and we had Pattonville. We had these five school districts. And so now we're going to set up our community advisory board, which is going to be students, parents, staff members, administrators that were going to be there to advise us on our project on how we were going to do this. So I give this Washington University Dr. Jason Newland presentation, right? Yep. I actually wasn't me. And that's what bothers me. Anyway, so I do this presentation. Honestly, I thought, ah. Nailed it. Crushed it. And then I get the email. You were quite academic. I was quite <laughs> academic. <laughs> yes. Oh, goodness. I was so academic. Oh, man. Yeah, you sent me an email. And I'm forever grateful. I'm forever thankful. But why did you know you could do it? 
Well, you know, before you got the email, Sharita and I had to have a conversation. Yeah, right? Because this is a big deal for you guys. Yeah, we had to process. We had to process. Okay, we got to get out here. We got to have to tell Jason, listen, your name isn't just on the line. Our university is on the line. Our names are on the line. We have to go to individuals when they come to us and say, who is this guy? Should we trust him? What is this whole process about? What is this testing about? We had to say, this is the real deal. Then we got questions, which you didn't know was like, why are you guys doing this in the black community? Here you go again. Why aren't you doing it in the white community? Yeah, we got that. Yeah, we did get that. So we felt, no, if we're going to do this, Jason has got to change his language. But first, we have to help him change his mind. Yes. He has to see himself as a member of the entire St. Louis community. We have to break down this divide, this segregation. And it started in the language. Yeah. So when we came to you and said, basically, Jason, you have to stop seeing your community because it automatically creates a distance and a divide. And I think, Jason, you when you listened, I could see everything shows on your face. So I can see it on your face. You got it. You also said be authentic. Be authentic. Because you guys both said to me, says, look, we bought into you. Yes. Because of the way you were with this. And now you're not being that way. And I was like, oh. You're being too academic. My God. Come on, dude. Be you. <laughs> right. You're an hour. We. I now am. I'm, I'm changed for the better because of this. Yes. I get so mad when we would hear, you know, the black community in St. Louis isn't as vaccinated. Like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You mean our St. Louis community? Yes. And then, and then to blame it and victimize our black. That goes back to the deficit model that. Yes. Sharita talks about, right? Like that we've learned about, no, 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 don't you do that. We have no idea all the reasons and rationales and this, oh, they're, they're just more hesitant. Bull crap, Aruski, man. We just talked about how hard it can be <laughs> to get vaccinated. Right. Our community needs to be working together on this. That's right. Yeah, you guys changed my life in that. It was, it was a, a, a significant moment because we knew that's when Sharita and I along with you and your wonderful team, mm -hmm. we became a force to be reckoned with because we changed minds. And if we could change your mind, we could change other minds. So it, it was very encouraging. And Jason, we did. Yeah, um, I'm glad you brought up our team. I mean, our team is phenomenal. Phenomenal. I mean, and, and our team is diverse, and that was fun too. And energetic and not afraid and courageous and unflinching. Oh, my gosh. They were in it. I mean, they were testing people. They were in the schools. I mean, Summer and Sydney Reyes, right? Our two young 24, 25-year-old recent Washington University graduates wanting to go to medical school, leading how to get tested. Our Brittany and Brittany yes. Bonte, another young black woman, you know, leading our drive-up testing with Christina Evans, another wonderful black woman. I mean, it goes on and on. Yes, Jamie and others we can oh, name. Yeah. Just fat and Sam. Oh my gosh. Oh, oh, Samer. Yes, oh, Sam Hayes, who's pulling some strings here and there and making sure we were doing this. And I, yeah, you know, um, we turned it to them and they actually, your kind of wisdom calming force and this talking with our team on our weekly meeting was kind of part of that inspiration for everybody.
Also partially like, hey, we can't let Miss Cynthia down, right? Like this is how important this is. But that's the key of, I think, big, you know, when you have a team that's working to, to address a really important problem at the time. And not that we got it all perfectly right. Like we had, right. we have some pretty hard stories, right? Yes, that's right. We dealt with what I would say racism within our team. That's right. Um, and had to have some pretty hard conversations as a team, saying some hurtful things to you that frankly was one of the most awful times in, you know, learning. And I think at that point I had maybe graduated myself into some other ways about understanding more about how you, your words and actions, while you think are pure, are not pure when you say things that don't trust and respect an individual as an individual, regardless of what they look like. And some of what we dealt with, it was not unclear the source of the contention. It was around being black. It was around being black. It was said. It was said. Right. It was said. That's right. You're a black leader. You're a black leader. I now have to learn how to listen to a black leader. No, 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 no. <laughs> oh, no. Remember, right? As I remember, race is a social construct. You just need to learn how to listen to a leader. What are you talking That's about? That's right. No matter what you look like. And I think that still is hard for people. It is. What has, in the end, this project meant to you or with all that we've been through in the COVID testing world and our community during COVID and our black community during COVID and being a part of this? To me, it was an opportunity to get on the bus. So back in civil rights, the bus meant a lot. And you had to choose when you were going to get on the bus or if you were going to get on the bus. And of course, the bus meant that was your commitment, that you were going down to the source of the issue and you were going to be present and accounted for. COVID-19 and this project that we worked on, Safe Return to Schools, was a get on the bus moment. And so I think it's one of the, one of the many moments that I have acquired in my lifetime that made me proud to have tried, to have spoken up. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people don't know what it takes behind the scenes to get things done, the the risks that are being taken, but this was worth it. It's still worth it. Yeah, I'll say that um, it's hard. I got uncomfortable a lot. I got challenged a lot. You guys challenged me and made me uncomfortable and taught me how to lean in and learn and listen. And I try to take with that with me every day. Jason, what did that feel like? Scary. I've said this probably on this podcast before, right? I'm a white man. I can walk. And when I walk into a hospital, I don't need a white coat. I'm an old white dude. I get treated like a doctor, whether I was one or not. I get treated like I'm a smart person. I'm I'm treated like I'm a leader just by walking in the front door. Do you know how rare that is to hear a white male or a white person in general own that? Well, we need we need to understand it more, right? That's why I say it. Yes. And so I I think when you're getting challenged and questioned from people that usually don't challenge you or push back on you, whether it was because they were young and they were just out of college and they were coordinators. Let's be clear. I had the twins in here being like, "What are you doing?" <laughs> right? You and Sharia, not physicians, not I mean black women and do that I knew and respected, but you know, I was being challenged. I was being pushed. And I'm like, I can't mess this up, man. We cannot. And then again, it was an I, but in the reality, I need to be a we. I didn't want to fail. Oh my God. I didn't want to, I didn't want to fail. And it wasn't just a personal fail for you. You didn't want to fail the community. No, absolutely. And I think that's where it became more because I, because I was so mortified 
that I was, let's see, 2020, right? I'm a 46-year-old, about to be 46-year-old man who basically didn't realize how privileged he had had it for 46 years. Mm -hmm. And now I was like, how do I make it better mm -hmm. and do it in the midst of a pandemic? That was the blessing is that at least I was able to see. And I, and I have, thankfully, I have a father that was also coming to his own epiphany of kind of his upbringing and how him being a white male and how different it, he had it. And we were both trying to wrestle and, you know, and having a mother who probably always saw and was always trying to fight for those who hadn't, weren't fought for. Thankfully, I had them as, as role models that w were willing to be vulnerable in this, right? I mean, I think that was probably important. I think the word that you might, that comes to mind was reckoning. I think there was a lot yeah. of people who had reckonings and there are many, there are many reckonings and COVID-19 really caused people to sit with themselves and understand where am I coming from? And it didn't just happen for white people. It happened for me because look, Jason, I'm a privileged black woman and I know that. Yeah. I'm privileged by virtue of working at Washington University and having a master's degree. Those two points alone, yeah. to a certain extent, that gives me privilege. And then when you add Dean in any version yeah. onto my name, now once I leave the campus, then I revert back to black woman. We'll see what happens. Yeah. You know. I think that's another thing that we as a society do right we put everybody into a bucket one monolith right so yes, you're, you're right the social conscious of being black you're a black woman so that automatically means that you're what black women are whatever exactly. whatever one's context is and it, every one of them is the same you're if you're black and you live in north county right that means oh you must be a poor black woman who is working maybe fast food or 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 not environmental educated. services or non educated like all of these That's things right. it's not a monolith people Exactly. I'm going to tell you this, Jason. I had this coming to mind. I once had a supervisor. Uh, I put my credentials by my name and we had a, an evaluation, an annual evaluation. And she marked me down because she said that I exhibited hubris because I put my credentials behind my name. And I had to explain to her, listen, when people see you or they get correspondence from you, they'll assume, they'll assume you're a PhD. Me, I have to inform. Mm -hmm. So I'm putting my credentials behind my name. Yeah. So, you know, that further supports the fact that, yes, I I do have a level of privilege. I do know that. Yeah. But, you know, it's it's limited. Yeah. I always tell people, I says, I don't like the white coats in the hospital because I, I, I feel like they create a hierarchy. However, easy for me not, again, white male. I've had to learn this over time. I'm a white male. I mean, I, I, like I said, I can walk in a hospital. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm a doctor. My colleagues that are women, they don't often, they'll get called a, a nurse. And not that there's anything wrong being a nurse, but they're not a nurse or a doctor. Exactly. Right? And if you're a black male or a black woman, and you are a doctor and you're not wearing a white coat, who knows what they're going to think you are? Our society hasn't gotten to a point where we can all walk into a place and all be looked at as an important part of a team, no matter what part you are. And that you can all be a doctor, you can all be a nurse, you can all be working in environmental service, you can all be the, all part of a team. But we all, we, because we put everyone in these little hierarchies, you know, we have a long, long way to go. I, you know, my hope is that that Summer or Sydney or Brittany, when they're doctors, because they're all going to med school, mm -hmm. that's that's also one of those big proud moments yes. for all of us, that they can walk in and not have to wear a white coat. And I, I'm not sure it's going to be, maybe they're kids. You know, that's the hope. That's that's one of those things I hope for. Let me ask you, the equity tax, if I say that, does that mean something to you? Not enough for me to be able to speak on it. 
I can't believe I'm doing this on podcast, but I, I, I was recently at a, at a conference and I went in to an anti-racism kind of session where they were honoring a, a black man, a Dr. Joseph Wright, who's a black pediatric emergency medicine doctor. He gave this fantastic presentation talking about this leaves and roots. So, you know, doing an icebreaker, everyone knows you this, but here are your roots. And he talked about kind of where his family grew up and came from in South Carolina. And it's kind of, you know, the segregation and slave and the plantations. And he, he was talking about this, but, and then they had some panel sessions and then they show all these people on these different equity task force to work on the anti-racism stuff. And a black man gets up and asks this question. And he says, he turns to the panel and says, I look at these all these people, and there's probably 20 people, and I says, it looks like about 60 or 70% are unrepresented minorities. That's a lot on all these people. Where's the majority? Mm-hmm. This notion that our black individuals, our people of unrepresented minorities, have to, they're the ones having to do this, and there's no majority. Right. Does that make sense? It does. Quite common. Right? We basically want all these anti-racism and equity activities. It's all of our people that racism's happening to. It's like if the majority comes to the room, it's an acknowledgement that it exists, that racism exists. But we're constantly in rooms. The we that are in rooms look like me and others, people of color, to hear what others should be hearing and implementing. I'm bringing this up because the reality of it is Jason Newlands and the white men and white women, and mainly white men, I would say, a lot of white men, need to be in those rooms and not be scared about being in those rooms. Is that right? That's true. I'd be lying if I said I don't have this feeling. Sometimes you're like, oh, maybe I'm not supposed to be there. No, it's actually quite the opposite. That's a common feeling. Maybe I shouldn't be in the room. Maybe this is a closed set for people of color, but it's not. It's not. It's actually completely the opposite, right? Like the fact of the matter is, and we didn't talk about this. So Cynthia leads the Black History Month speaker series at WashU. At Brown School. At Brown School. Brown School at WashU. Ah, same. I mean, I know it's not the same, but to me it's the same. <laughs> okay. And the theme this year was resistance to oppression. I always, I'm sorry. Resistance against oppression. Against oppression, which mm-hmm. is fantastic. And I remember you asked me to be the first speaker. Yeah. And I was honored beyond belief, but I was also scared, right? Because I was like, am I supposed to be here? And now I'm like, oh my gosh, I have it all wrong. I had to be the first one to give the talk. Yes. And that's why I gave the talk. I mean, that's why you had me give the talk. I didn't know it then. Right. By the way, I don't know if you realize this, but I'm just, this is just dawning on me. Really? Totally. If I unpack it, I can't, I'm unpacking it to the podcast. If I unpack it, I was scared because I didn't, I was afraid I was going to mess up and not represent our work and, and I would be disrespectful in a way. That fear was the wrong fear. The wrong fear would actually be not to do it. I thought the wrong decision would to not contribute to this opportunity to resist oppression. And a white male needs to actually be one of the speakers. Exactly. Right. We need to be a part of this in a way that we don't realize. Exactly. Like white people have always been part of the resistance. Yeah. It might have been underground. Yeah. But no, we need individuals to stand with us in public and in private and in the bright light. Yeah. And in the bright light. And I guess I, I'm saying this because I want hopefully people to hear this, that if you have the feeling and I'm again, I was having it, that you shouldn't be a part of it or you shouldn't. Be, no, 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 no. You need to be a part of Center for the Study of Race, Ethnicity and Equity. We need to be a part of these things. Our white colleagues, we need to be a part of these things. Yes. 
And we can't sit in the background and be like, oh, I shouldn't do that. Is that fair? It, it absolutely is. I actually had people to turn me down because they wanted assurance that it would be a positive outcome for their organization. And I'm like, uh, you're taking this way too deep. You're bringing the topic. And this is a national theme, resistance against oppression. People can only be who they are at the time. Yeah. So I'm still I'm still working on them. You need me to do whatever. I'm there. Okay. I, I, I'm I'm so there after this. I'm like, it was so impactful for me as I've, and I'll be honest to everybody. Like I, I'm one of these that it's, I'm still like reflecting and thinking and, and, uh, and I've actually, I asked one of our team members, I asked Christina. So Christina Evans is one of our wonderful team members really we're trying to making sure we're still being in our community. And I was like, okay, do I got this right? I feel it's so important for us to understand that we all have to be a part of it. And a, and a white male, you, you feel like you're being respectful by not being there. No, no, you're actually doing harm. You're actually got it wrong. I didn't have bad intentions. I just was wrong. I am just flat out wrong. That's right. And white females, I will say, sometimes let white males carry the whole load. But white females need to step up. Yeah. We all need to be in the room. My white sisters need to step up too. Yeah. How do we address health disparity? You're such a big thinker, and this is a big, big question. And, I, and you can take it anywhere you want to go with it. But I, what are some things that we need to be doing more? Jason, some things are just simple. Listen, just listen to the people that you serve and the experience that I had. I was very, very depressed at one point. My father, uh, who who did eventually die in October of 2022, there were a lot of things associated with that. That was my my love, my dad. So I went to my PC and I needed some help. I explained, you know, they had this little green form. And it said, list all the things that you're here for. It gave me six numbers, six blank spots. I filled in all six blank spots. And when I got back to the doctor, my doctor was on call that day. So I had a substitute. And the lady railed on me for filling in all six spots and told me she could only attend to the top two. I was mortified. I was embarrassed. I was all the things and I burst into tears, but I dried my tears and told her what she needed to know. I asked her, do I really have to identify myself for you? So let me tell you my pedigree. And I started telling her who I was in the community. And I said, now I'm telling you all that because you're assuming that I am somebody else. But what is very, very disheartening is I had to go through all of that to get you to treat me just like a human being. I had to go through my pedigree just to get your attention. I had to cry to get your attention. Well, when my doctor came back, she asked me what happened because she heard part of it. I think the next time I came back, that doctor was no longer there. Now, so let me tell you, not listening should come with the cost. Not understanding and knowing should come with the cost. If I can't educate you, yeah. or if you don't seek out education to really help those who are most vulnerable, then what are you doing in healthcare? I don't know what job you'd be appropriate for, really, but what are you doing in healthcare? So just start off listening. It doesn't cost a dime. Yeah, listening and don't think you know already. 
Exactly. And don't pigeonhole people into some place that is negative. It's a deficit. Look at the strengths in everybody. Look at the strengths and look at your form. Oh, and they did away with the form too. <laughs> the green form was gone. Green form, not so green. Not so green is gone. What was the hardest part of the pandemic for you? Being afraid every day that my parents were going to contract it. You'll hear the tears in my voice. And I would lose them to COVID because I thought it was so unnecessary that I would lose my parents because of pre-existing medical conditions and because of their age. They were so vulnerable. So that was my biggest fear. And a couple of times my dad did have to be hospitalized. Remember. And, you know, he could only have one visitor. Oh. Well, I'm telling you, that alone caused my father to become so disoriented. They wanted to treat him for something that he didn't show up for. But the system created his reaction. My sister and I, my daughter, who's a, an RN, had to really advocate for changing the system because some people were pushed into a whole nother category, a whole nother response that they didn't show at the hospital for just because you didn't understand that you were taking everything that this man was new, everybody he knew, and he was thrust into a stranger situation. Yeah, we didn't get that right. No, we didn't. We forgot quickly what social connection and, and family meant for people. That's true. Jason, you know what? Before we end, I want to say to you, you know what else we didn't get right? We had a, an amazing report from the Ferguson Commission. And the Ferguson Commission report got a lot of things right. Yeah. And when COVID came, we still weren't ready. We act like we didn't know about the disparities. Access. We didn't know the challenges associated with youth and the vulnerable commu communities. And when COVID came, we still weren't ready. Man, my fear now is if we have another pandemic or a continuing pandemic or something new, we're still not going to be ready. And that's not okay. Not okay. I, I'm worried too. It scares me to death. I mean, you look at how, how polarized things have been gotten in our, in our country and you, you see people trying to take, you know, you know, in, in, I think it's in Florida, they removed the book about Roberta Clemente because of, they thought that's critical race theory and these laws taking off these books. I mean, the fact that people are taking books out of libraries. Right. Shows you where we're headed, right? Or the fact that if you're transgender, you not you, you get expelled from the legislature because you, you agree. Or the fact that you have a, two black men and a, and a white woman who protests against gun violence in, in Tennessee and the two black guys get expelled from the legislature. Exactly. And you think we don't have racism in our society? Oh, my exactly. gosh. Okay, then what is that? What's up with that? What's up with that? <laughs> make it make sense. <laughs> Dude, I mean, come on. So I'll just say this conversation is phenomenal. Okay, so here, what was the most influential thing that someone has or had told you that helped you through the COVID-19 pandemic? My mother told me, baby, this too shall pass. I lived through the depression. You can live through this. Just pray. <laughs> so that was influential. It stays with me. This too shall pass. Don't get so invested in this like it's going to be the rest of your life. It may not be. So just move forward, move through it, and take care of yourself, right? Awesome. Awesome. Where would you go if you could visit any place on earth and why? Because I have been gifted the privilege to go to Uganda this coming June, 
Yes, I'm going to Entebbe, Uganda, uh, mid-June to the end of June. That's where my mind is. So I can't, I can't wait. Congrats. I can't wait to see the pictures. Oh, you'll get them. And the (laughs) whole story. Yeah, we're going to have dinner for that one. Okay, uh, what was your childhood dream job and why? My childhood dream job was to, this sounds silly, I thought moving a lot of papers meant that I was important. So as a child, I remember I want to have be responsible for a lot of paperwork. Oh, how <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God. Oh boy. And part B was that at Washington University. There you go. I'm doing both. You kind of are doing both. <laughs> I'm doing both. Well, at least you got the second half. Yeah. <laughs> okay. What book are you currently reading? Well, right now, I'm currently reading a book called The Bible. And now, let me tell you. You always are reading the Bible, though. I know you. Yeah. I, and I put that in yeah. line because that, right now, that has to be first with me. And let me tell yeah. you why. Yeah. Jason, I'm no spring chicken. And so. Hey, the audience doesn't know that, by the way. You sound like a spring chicken. <laughs> well, I'm telling you. She looks like a spring chicken, too, by the way. Oh, thank you, Jason. Sorry to interrupt. It's Okay. It's important for me. All the other things, there's also a book that the title has to do with, You Can't Cancel Me. That's not the exact title. Yeah, yeah, I I hear you. Yeah, but I'm putting everything in perspective because I have a limited amount of time. I've never become more aware of my limitations of time. Mm -hmm. And so whatever I'm going to do, I have great health. I'm strong. And so now... I I want to make sure that my priorities are right and that I'm carrying out my mission. I have a mission. I I have a purpose why I'm here on this earth. And my time is running out, and I'm aware of that. Well, I I know you're going to have a lot more time. I think we all have, obviously, time's running out, but you're having a lot more time. I need you. you. I need you here a lot longer. A lot, lot longer. Okay. I'm going to hang in here with you, Jason. I appreciate that a lot. That was amazing, Miss Cynthia. Thank you. I thought so, too. This was wonderful. Thank you for including me. Well, thank you for, for everything you've done, for all that you continue to do. I mean, our community, our St. Louis community, our St. Louis region, our our state, our country is pretty lucky to have such a wonderful person that speaks the truth, tells it like it is, uses her love language to make people better and to make our world better. Thank you so much. What an inspiration to listen to Cynthia. From her story of accomplishing her goal of getting a master's degree in social work from Washington University's Brown School of Social Work, to being the inaugural Brown School Assistant Dean of Community Partnership. Her leadership in this role has helped many of us develop important relationships with our community that has led to, frankly, super impactful partnerships, especially during the pandemic. We were able to do things in our community that provided testing, guidance, and really helpful times during a really tough time for everyone. There's no doubt her guidance and wisdom taught me, our research team, and continues to teach many others what it means to be part of our, again stressing our community, taught me really how to be authentic and has continued to inspire me to learn more about racism, to learn more about healthcare disparities, 
has taught me how to collaborate in our black community and our marginalized communities and really makes me want to address disparities more and more and to figure out my role in that. I am forever, forever indebted to her and the profound impact she has had on my life and has truly made me a, a much, much better person, especially during such a hard time. As I said over and over, everyone needs to know Cynthia or you need to find your Cynthia because uh, she has inspired and many, many, many and will continue to do that. Well, guys, we have more to unpack from the pandemic and this episode is one of many. So join us again as we continue to listen, relate and reminisce on shared and differing experiences. Thank you again to Cynthia for your many hours you spent recording our podcast since it took two times. And again, thanks to the wonderful, illustrious, amazing Gabby Smith for producing our show. Until next time, have an incredible, awesome week.